Welcome. I'm Leslie Canham. I'm Mary Gavoni. I'm Linda Harvey. I'm Olivia Wan, and together we are the Compliance Divas. Welcome to the Compliance Divas podcast. My name is Mary Gavoni, and I will be the moderator for this episode. The Compliance Divas brings clarity and simplicity to compliance by navigating the regulatory environment to keep you on course. You can subscribe to the Compliance Divas podcast through your favorite podcast channel or on our website at thecompliancedivas.com. Any resources that we mention during the podcast can be found on our website, thecompliancedivas.com, and you can always submit questions by email to support at thecompliancedivas.com. Today's episode is going to be a two-parter because we have two topics that are very timely, updates from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention that are separate yet related. So we're going to start out first with the changes in the guidance from the CDC regarding masks due to the high transmissibility of the Omicron variant of COVID-19. So this information is current as of January 14th, 2022. And we're going to start with Leslie this morning. Leslie, because this information was really geared toward consumers, as the CDC calls them, talk about the differences in guidelines or guidance from the CDC for healthcare workers versus consumers. Well, yes, Mary, it's actually very confusing to a lot of people in the general public. Uh, CDC continues to recommend that people wear the most protective mask that they can. And that means it's well worn so that it fits well and it's worn consistently. So with this new update, they clarified that people can choose respirators such as N95s or K95s without a concern to the supply shortages that we've been hearing about throughout this pandemic of not having enough N95s. They stated, however, that surgical N95s and respirators should be reserved for healthcare settings. So if people can use an alternative to get the very best type of mask protection they can. Now, they also continue to indicate that masking is a critical public health tool for preventing the spread of COVID. And it's important to remember that any mask is better than no mask. And they also uh, wanted to make sure the general public knows that while all masks and respirators provide some level of protection, properly fitting respirators provide the highest level of protection. So wearing a highly protective mask or respirator may be most important for people who have a higher risk situation. So people who may be at increased risk for severe disease. So that's the the bead for the general public and healthcare workers should follow the infection prevention and control recommendations for healthcare personnel during COVID-19 pandemic. Those were updated in September and it provided us with some specific information about source control, first of all, in our healthcare settings uh, that we could use uh, mask, well-fitting mask or respirators uh, to cover our nose and mouth and prevent the spread of respiratory secretions when we're talking, breathing, coughing, or sneezing, and that face shields uh, add more protection, but also are not to be used alone. And when it comes to our setting, for dental, under the 2000, uh, the 2021 guidance from CDC for healthcare settings, 
uh, we're advised that when we're performing aerosol generating procedures on patients who are not suspected or confirmed to have SARS-CoV-2, that we should wear the recommended PPE, which includes an, a NIOSH approved N95 or equivalent or higher respirator. And that's in counties with substantial or high levels of transmission. So this is important to remember that uh, we perform aerosol generating procedures where the general public does not. So commonly used instruments like uh, using an ultrasonic scaler or high-speed handpiece, air and water syringe, air polishing, air abrasion, things like that will, will further propel these aerosols. So the healthcare worker definitely has to be more cautious and aware of surgical N95 and surgical masks where the general public is saying, you can use them, you can use uh, KN95s, but be mindful that they should be reserved for healthcare settings first, at least with the N95s. Mary? Thanks, Leslie. That was such a great explanation. Olivia, we still see many dental practices doing aerosol generating procedures wearing an ASTM level three surgical mask and a face shield. And with this new information where the general public, not in a dental office where their aerosols being generated, are told to wear a higher level of protection, I think it's important for us to understand how much protection do the masks that we're wearing in the practice provide versus respirators? Good question, Mary, because it does seem confusing if the general public is advised to wear an N95 and yet dental practices are merely wearing a level three with a face shield. I'd like to refer to the American Conference of Governmental Industrial Hygienists chart that the divas located, which is really helpful in comparing the mask. When we look at a surgical mask, it has a 50% inward leakage and outward leakage. So it may be appropriate for patients to wear as source control as the chart indicates, but it does not provide adequate protection for our dental workers from inhaling infectious particles such as COVID. We compare that to the N95 filtering face piece respirator, and it only has a one to 10% inward leakage and outward leakage. And so although it does have to be fit tested and medical evaluations in wearing respirators, we see the, the value in protecting our dental workers with the N95 compared to just a mere surgical mask. So when we look at this chart, the value, once again, of the N95, you get so many more hours of protection compared to just a surgical mask. So we're going to put that resource on our website for our listeners. Thanks very much, Olivia. When I looked at that chart, I went, holy cow, it made me want to run for my N95 to wear out um, in, in public, let alone if I were working in, in the dental practice. So a couple of points that our diva, Linda Harvey, was um, not able to be here with us today, but she wanted us to, to emphasize. Remember that KN95s, although promoted now for use in the public, are not appropriate for other than source control in a dental practice. They are not appropriate for use during treatment. And 
again, it's sort of that that oxymoron that if the general public who isn't exposed necessarily to the aerosols that we are in dentistry, if they're being told we're a higher level of protection because of the, the increased transmissibility of the Omicron virus, shouldn't we be paying better attention to that in our dental practices? So Leslie, we know that California has some very specific guidelines about respiratory protection. Have there been any changes recently that you need to let our listeners know about? Mary, there are going to be changes that are based on the uh, new CDC guidance for isolation and quarantine. And I know we're going to be getting to that a little bit later in this other part of the podcast today. But uh, one thing that has come up is that infected healthcare workers who are allowed to return to work who are infected with COVID-19 must wear N95 respirators as source protection. So that's the first change. The next one is something that's been ongoing with the emergency temporary standard that is a state standard in California. Employers must provide respirators for voluntary use to all non-healthcare worker employees who are not fully vaccinated and who are working indoors or if you happen to be in a vehicle with more than one person. Of course, in dentistry, that isn't usually the case unless it's mobile dentistry. And then when supplies are available, individuals can choose to use a basic uh, N95 respirator for personal use instead of a mask in some situations. And N95s, of course, again, should be prioritized for healthcare personnel. And we never in our occupational setting uh, as healthcare workers can use a KN95. We must use the NIOSH certified N95s and we cannot reuse them. We are not uh, short on supplies to the point where we cannot use a new N95 for each patient we see. Mary, that's it. Thanks, Leslie. And thank you for the reminder about not reusing them. I think there are still many practices out there that believe we're still in crisis mode and um, not aware that the emergency use authorization allowing for them to be decontaminated and reused was revoked back in June of this year, so they cannot be reused. The other thing in sort of in closing and moving on to our second topic in this episode is that N95s as a reminder for employees must be fit tested prior to initial use. And the OSHA has lifted the um, suspension of the annual fit testing rule. And we have talked about this um, on a couple of previous podcasts about one of the most efficient and effective ways um, to do fit testing is actually to learn how to do it in your practice. And part of the resources that we will have available for this episode will be some training materials that we have developed as the compliance divas to help you meet that fit test requirement. So let's move on to our second topic of the day, which is the CDC's modification of its guidance on work restrictions, isolation, return to work for a healthcare worker who has been exposed to COVID-19. Now, there have been similar changes to these types, this type of guidance for the general public, but we are focusing specifically on what applies to healthcare workers. So Olivia, can you explain a little bit about when this update happened? Um, are we expecting another update because there's been a lot of controversy about it? Sure, Mary. So the information for healthcare workers was published 
December 23rd, whereas the general public recommendations was published January 9th. So we want to make sure we're landing on the correct CDC pages to make sure we're following those guidelines correctly. So when we look at the chart from the 23rd of December, it indicated that the work restrictions for healthcare personnel with SARS-CoV-2 infection, if they were boosted, vaccinated, or unvaccinated, conventional treatment would be 10 days or seven days with a negative test if asymptomatic or mildly symptomatic. Contingency standard would be five days with or without negative test if asymptomatic or mildly symptomatic. Now, when we drop down to looking at the vaccinated status where someone has had all the COVID vaccines, including the booster, conventional standard was no work restriction with negative test on day two and then days five to seven. Contingency standard was no work restriction. However, in looking at some updates, the conventional treatment would be no work restriction with negative test on day one and then days five to seven, whereas the contingency standard would be no work restriction. But keep in mind, that's if they're fully boosted and asymptomatic. But always follow the state's Department of Health information because your state, regardless where the, the, the listeners are listening from, your state might have different regulations than what CDC is recommending. So although we're wanting you to look at these sites carefully, always refer back to your state and local health departments. Thanks very much, Olivia. And we understand for our listeners, this has been confusing. It has been confusing for us as the compliance divas as well. And as Olivia said, always check with your state health department, your local health department to get their recommendations on what your state rules are. There's been, as I mentioned before, a lot of controversy about whether or not mildly symptomatic healthcare workers should actually return to the workplace. And that's a decision I think that that doctors and teams need to talk about and and discuss how they're going to follow this, this protocol. Because if you are screening out your patients for COVID symptoms, but yet you have a team member in your practice that's been diagnosed with COVID, not that that has to be divulged, but they're in the office and they may have a cough, then that may send up some alarm bells or cause some issues for for patients. So again, our diva Linda Harvey wasn't able to be with us today, but she wanted us to talk about who should be tested for COVID-19 and when. And this information will be in the resources on the Compliance Divas website as part of this podcast edition. But I want to start out by saying that first and foremost, anyone with COVID-19 symptoms, vaccinated or not, should be tested. Of course, now the challenge is getting a test and finding a location where you can be tested, but anyone who has COVID-19 symptoms and anyone who has a high-risk exposure. So Leslie, can you address what would be a high-risk exposure? Um, 
how it is defined by the CDC. And can you also explain the difference to us between isolation and quarantine? Because I think there's a lot of misunderstanding there. Absolutely, Mary. Well, let's go with the definitions for exposure and close contact and uh, distinguish between the two. Exposure is contact with someone who is infected with SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19, in a way that increases the likelihood of getting infected with the virus. And then close contact is contact with someone who was less than six feet away from an infected person, and uh, an infected person would be uh, you know, someone who has a clinical diagnosis or a laboratory confirmed test for a cumulative total of 15 minutes or more over a 24 hour period. So example, if you had three five minute exposures with one person who was uh, diagnosed as having COVID-19 for a total of 15 minutes, that would be a close contact. I think today it, it almost, the lines are blurred because uh, exposure and close contact, I think, you know, you don't really need 15 minutes from what I'm seeing with the transmissibility of this uh, Omicron variant. So now that we know the difference there, let's talk about the difference between quarantine and isolate. If you were exposed to a person who's been infected, stay away from others so that you don't have close contact. Quarantine is a strategy to prevent transmission of COVID-19 by keeping people who have been in close contact with someone with COVID-19 apart from others. So when do you not need to quarantine? If you've had close contact with someone with COVID-19 and you're in one of these following groups, you don't need to quarantine. Either you're up to date with all of your COVID vaccinations or you had confirmed COVID within the last 90 days, meaning you tested positive using a viral test. Now, uh, in those circumstances, you should still wear a well-fitting mask around others for 10 days, and you should get tested at least five days after you last had close contact with someone who had COVID-19. And if you do test positive, now you go to isolate. And here's the definition for isolation. You, this is when you are sick. You actually are sick when you have COVID-19 or even if you don't have symptoms and you test positive for COVID-19. Isolation is used to separate people with confirmed or suspected COVID-19 from those without COVID-19. Now, uh, just a little bit more information just to help really make it easy to understand. People who are in isolation should stay home until it's safe for them to be around others. And while they're at home, anyone who's sick or infected should separate themselves from other family members. Also wear a well-filling mask when they need to be around others. People in isolation should stay in a specific sick room or area or use a separate bedroom and even bathroom if available. Everyone who has presumed or confirmed COVID-19 should stay home and isolate from others for at least five full days. They should wear a mask when around others at home and in public for an additional five days. And people who are confirmed to COVID-19 and are showing symptoms of COVID-19 need to isolate regardless of their vaccination status. And also, you can end isolation after five full days if you're fever-free for 24 hours without the use of fever-reducing medication and your other symptoms have improved. You should still wear a well-fitting mask around others for 10 days. And then here's another one, don't travel for a five-day isolation period. So there you have it, as best as I can explain the difference between isolation and quarantine. Thanks, Leslie. Olivia, did you have something that you needed to add? 
I was just thinking, Mary, you know, it's frustrating people to have these changes that we're having to keep up with. But according to CDC, 85 to 90 percent of disease transmission occurs one to two days before symptoms appear and then two to three days after. So based on this current science is why CDC saw the need to revise some of these quarantine guidelines. Absolutely, Olivia. Thank you for reminding us about that. And again, we just want to remind our listeners that the reason that the CDC or one of the reasons that the CDC is paying such close attention to revising these guidelines, and it seems like it's changing so frequently is because, again, we're learning more about COVID-19, we're learning more about variants, and the Omicron variant is so much more transmissible than even the Delta variant, and that's why it has spread so quickly. So Leslie, we're going to come back to you again about California. What can you tell us about the California Emergency Temporary Standard and public health rules that our listeners need to know? Thank you, Mary. You know, the California Emergency Temporary Standard did have some changes on January 14th, and uh, there were no specific changes to respiratory requirements or respiratory protection, but they did have some changes that I thought were interesting. First of all, the definition of a COVID-19 test now includes specific instructions for workers who are using an at-home test with self-read results to follow these specific steps, but an employer or a telehealth professional must observe the use of that test. So that is a little bit of a twist and a turn from what we had before where an employee could self-certify that they had a negative COVID test. Um, and then um, when employees who are fully vaccinated, whether or not they're booster eligible or boosted, if they can't be tested and they are required to be quarantined, those employees must wear face coverings and physically distance from others for at least 14 days. And it's interesting because today we're having such trouble getting the test. I hear of people who are waiting in line to get the test and they're anywhere from five to seven days before they get results. So this is creating quite a conundrum for us. So those type of changes are changes that we need to be aware of. They're part of OSHA's requirement in California and public health orders also echo what the CDC is saying about healthcare workers returning back to work, even though they may be infected and uh, even symptomatic. But the other part of that is, of course, wearing an N95 respirator as source control. Dentists need to really take a hard look at whether they want to consider dental workers to be in the same category as healthcare workers. Uh, the crisis capacity, contingency capacity, and conventional capacity are to protect our hospitals and healthcare system from the workforce shortage, which may not equate to the same workforce shortage that we're experiencing in dentistry. Mary? Thank you, Leslie and Olivia and Linda as well. Um, we know that we shared a lot of information with you in this, in this episode, and we want to remind you that all the resources we mentioned, including those for the state of California, um, are available on our website at thecompliancedivas.com. We hope that you will join us for our next episode and please stay safe and stay well.